1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'll be reading this morning verses 13 through 18. This is God's holy word, his inerrant word, his powerful and transformative word. So please give it your full attention. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. People sometimes have a very strange way of facing the death of a loved one. When a woman named Miriam Banks died, her family, knowing how much she loved to party, had a table set up in the funeral home for the visitation and had Miriam's body sitting there in a chair with a cigarette in one hand and her favorite whiskey in the other while R&B music played and a disco ball spun around her head, over above her head. When James Henry Smith died, his family had the furniture from his living room, <clears throat> excuse me, had the furniture from his living room transported to the funeral home, and they set his body up in his favorite recliner while he wore his favorite Steelers sweatshirt, and in his hand, one hand was the remote, the other hand was his favorite beer, and the television in front of him played a continuous loop of Steelers Super Bowl games. When Billy Stanley died, his family had to buy three burial plots so that they could put his body on his motorcycle in a large plexiglass box. His body had his full leather gear on and helmet situated on his motorcycle as they laid him in the ground. Probably the strangest story like this I've ever heard was about the famous rap artist Tupac Shakur, who was cremated. And then they took his ashes, mixed it with marijuana, and his family and friends smoked it. I was reminded as I looked at these examples, I was reminded of how Paul, in his great chapter on the resurrection of Christ, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That appears to be the mindset of our culture. A culture that doesn't have a clue about what lies beyond death. A culture that ridicules the gospel and the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, it does seem to be the way that the people around us think. Let us party, 
Let us ride our motorcycles. Let us watch football. Let us smoke marijuana for tomorrow we die. If there's no hope after death, you better live it up now. This is all you get. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the town, the city of Thessalonica. And these Christians are grieving over recent deaths of loved, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says to this congregation, this new congregation, he says that they are not to grieve as others who do not have hope. And that really is the main point of this passage. That believers are not to grieve as others who do not have hope. We have given our lives, if you are a believer this morning, if you are a Christian, you have given your life to the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death is not the end of our fun. Death is not even the end of our existence. Death is not a wild leap into the unknown. For a believer... It's the beginning of an infinitely superior and eternal life with the Lord. The death of a loved one is a test of faith. And even those among us who have strong faith in Christ, our faith gets tested when somebody close to us dies. Do we really believe this? At the most important moment, we have to answer that question, is this really true? What is our hope? in the face of death, the one thing that no one can control. Paul is writing this part of the letter in response, again, the whole letter is written in response to a report that Timothy had brought back to him from this new church in Thessalonica. Paul had planted the church, he had preached the gospel there, he had discipled these new believers, but as you remember, he had to be uh, he had to leave prematurely. He was driven out by persecution, by opponents to the gospel. And so for the next few months, he was continually concerned about how these new believers living in a, in a hostile culture, facing persecution, how they were doing in their faith. How was the church doing? And so he had sent Timothy to them, and Timothy had just returned with a good report. Very encouraging to Paul and his associates, saying, the church in Thessalonica is doing well. Their faith is holding strong. They're loving one another. They're serving one another. The church is prospering. But they were troubled by a number of things. And Paul writes this letter to answer them. And the, and the question that they're dealing with in this part of the letter, and we'll see it comes up again in 2 Thessalonians, it's understandable. Paul had taught when he was with them, he would have taught them the basics of the Christian faith. And he would have taught that Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, is coming again someday. But as you know, there's a lot of complicated ideas about what his return looks like, when it's going to be. And, and we know from the way Paul talks here that he and undoubtedly the Christians in Thessalonica fully expected Jesus to come again in their lifetime. Fully expected that. And if you had lived in that day, you wouldn't have had any question about that either. Christ is coming again soon, so it's going to happen in my lifetime. But what had happened was is that while they were waiting for Christ to return, a couple of their beloved brothers and sisters in Christ had passed away. And this was very troubling to them. You know, it doesn't trouble us because we've seen 2,000 years of history since then. But to them, 
they thought, was this supposed to happen? How could somebody die before Christ comes again? Are they, and the big question that obviously was troubling him is, are they going to miss out on the second coming? Or even worse, does this mean that somehow they're lost and still under judgment somehow? So they're very concerned about where these brothers and sisters of Christ who had passed away, where they are, what their state was, and what their future was. And so Paul responds, and he begins this section by saying, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We don't want you to be ignorant about the truth. And again, I want to underline what I said last week, which is, we need the truth. The truth is what gives us peace and contentment, especially in this fallen world as we struggle with sin, our own sin and the sins of others. We need truth. The key to emotional, psychological, spiritual health is greater truth. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Understanding scripture more and more, understanding the gospel message particularly more and more is the key to peace and contentment in life. And on the other hand, ignorance of God's word weakens our hope and strengthens our fears of the unknown. So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about this most important topic. And so the first truth that he seeks to impart to them is that death is only sleep for a believer. Death is only sleep for a believer. Verse 13, Paul describes the believers who have died as those who sleep. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that consistently, that's how the Bible in the New Testament talks about the death of believers. Over and over again, it calls it sleep. That is the term that Christians used for sleep. Matter of fact, I learned this week that the word cemetery, that was coined, that's, that comes from a Greek word that means a sleeping place. It was a term, the word cemetery was coined by early Christians in the early church because that's how they saw the graveyard. It was a sleeping place, a cemetery. It spoke of their hope in Christ. To call death for a believer sleep points to the fact that when Christians, for Christians, when they die, it's a rest from their labors. They lie down. In the Old Testament, the phrase was to lie down with your fathers. It's the same idea. To rest from your labors, but also it points to the fact that this is temporary and preparatory for something beyond it. That sleeping is for the purpose of waking again. And we need to understand what the broader scriptures teach about our state of being, both now and in the future and in the ultimate future, in order to understand why Paul calls death for the believer's sleep. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In this passage, Paul is going to talk about three different states of being for a believer. Now again, we're talking about those who have given their life to Christ, who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, who have the, had their sins forgiven, and have been reconciled to God. For believers, there's three states of being that almost all of us will experience. He refers to two of them in the first two verses of 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to what he says. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about our physical, fallen, sin-wracked body. He calls it a tent because it's temporary. 
For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Not a tent, but a building, permanent. A building made by God. A building made in the heavens. Something that's designed for the future. A resurrection body. A body that is somewhat like this one, but perfect and glorious. So those are two states of being for a believer in Jesus Christ. Either you are in a temporary, fallen, weak, dying, sin-riddled body on earth, what we call tent, or you are in your resurrection body in the future. At some point in the future, if you're a believer, your body will be perfected. All effects of sin will be taken away and you will be the fullness of who you were intended to be, both body and soul. Then Paul refers a little bit later in chapter 5 to a third state of being for the believers, and that begins in verse 6. So he says there, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. While we are in this current tent, this body affected by the fall and by sin, we are away from the Lord in the sense of in the fullness of his presence. When we think of the Lord being in heaven, God the Son being on the throne at the right hand of the Father, we are away from the Lord in in his fullness of his presence. But we are at home in the body here. He goes on to say, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You see, he's talking about a third state there. Between our current state and this temporary tent of our fallen body and our ultimate being soul and body in perfection and a new resurrection body in the future, there isn't what we call the intermediate state. Where if our body stops, if our body dies, our soul goes to be with the Lord. We are away from the body but with the Lord. That's the state for those who have passed away now or in the past. They are away from their physical body, but their soul is in the very presence of God. Now, you might say, well, Paul calls it sleep. How do we know that the soul is not sleeping? And there are some who have believed that the soul sleeps until the second coming. We know from Scripture that that can't be the case because it's clearly taught that the soul at the point of death of a believer goes directly to be with the Lord. Jesus made that clear to us even when he was hanging on the cross dying for our sins. He turned to the thief beside him who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, who put his faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and the Messiah. He said to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. That believer, brand new believer on the cross would die in a few moments and immediately wake in the presence of the Lord. And Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says about his own death, contemplating his own death. He says, for me to live here in the body and away from the Lord, for me to live in this fallen world is Christ and to die is gain. My desire, he says, is to depart from this life to be with the Lord. So Paul clearly expected to die and then awake immediately in the presence of the Lord. Think about it. Paul is with the Lord now. His soul is with the Lord. 
St. Augustine's soul is with the Lord. John Calvin, Martin Luther's souls are with the Lord. R.C. Sproul's soul, Billy Graham's soul, they're with the Lord. My parents, Tom Houston, our former assistant pastor, their soul is in the presence of God, beholding his glory face to face, so to speak. The book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, is one of the main messages. And people who see the book of Revelation as being only about the future, they miss this completely. And I think it's one of the main points of the book of Revelation, which is that while the church militant is on earth, doing battle against sin, doing battle against the forces of darkness, proclaiming the gospel, advancing the kingdom, while the church on earth is being persecuted and serving the Lord faithfully, at the very same time, in the presence of God in heaven, the souls of the redeemed are very much awake, very much alive, and praising God in his very presence. That's the great comfort of the book of Revelation, is that the church militant fights, but the church triumphant is in the presence of the Lord even while we speak. So having this understanding of the nature of man, the nature of redeemed mankind, the church, helps us to have great hope for the future. That's what Paul is pointing to. He says, if you have that understanding of what happens immediately at death, that you are going to sleep only to awake in the presence of God, then you will not grieve as others do who have no hope. Really, the, the, the worldview of the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman worldview and philosophy that was the, the current spirit of the age in the first century where Thessalonica, where the people among whom they lived, you know, that was not really that much different than how people view the life beyond death today. In Greek and Roman culture, their view of the afterlife was full of confusion and uncertainty. In Greek philosophy, the body was considered to be evil and that the soul was imprisoned in the body. And so in a sense, when they saw death, they saw the soul being liberated from its prison of the body, but the body was something then to be put away once and for all, something evil. And so they did have a concept of the soul living on at the point of death, but it was so uncertain what the fate of the soul would be. When they buried the body or when they disposed of the body in a number of different ways in Roman culture, they would put a coin in the mouth of the corpse. The idea was that when the soul got to the river Styx, which was the boundary to Hades, they would be, give that coin to the ferryman, a, 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 a figure named Charon. They would give the, the ferryman the coin so that they would have passage into Hades. But not a great hope awaited them in Hades. There was judgment. They had a concept of judgment. Now, I say all this, if you read Greek philosophy and views of the afterlife, there's a lot of confusion because obviously not having God's revealed truth to know what it looked like, they're, 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 they've got this echo, I think, of something that, that is real, but it's so misconstrued and a lot of confusion. There's not a, there's not a majority report, so to speak. But the, the idea of what Hades was like was this shadowy, gloomy, kind of uh, wandering, wasted existence. But there was a, an idea of heaven, so to speak. They called it Elysium or the Elysian fields, but only the elite few got to go there. Those that were related to the gods in some way or the great heroes, they would go to the Elysian fields. 
But then there also was a place that would correspond to something like hell called Tartarus. And only the worst people would go there. But the rest of humanity would just kind of wander in this gloomy darkness, kind of regretting their life. And, and, and it, it was no hope. There was no hope. And I, I, I think about that when I think about when you say you go to a funeral and unbelievers and you're interacting with them, they say, well, I hope he's in a better place. Or, yeah, there's just so much uncertainty. How could you not be just driven to find out what's beyond the grave? Most expected their soul to exist beyond the grave, but there was little hope for even a better existence, let alone the kind of thing that the scriptures promise. Paul says we are to grieve with hope. And biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is something that's certain. It's concrete. It's something you can build your life upon. And that hope is the second point that Paul makes, which is that death is defeated. Verse 14 refers to the rock upon which our hope is built. He says, therefore, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The only reason we have any hope for those beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed away, the only reason we have any hope for them is because of the historical fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Everything that we believe that is true rests upon the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything. Paul said that clearly, going back to that great chapter on the resurrection, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Listen to the next line. Paul says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then those who have died are gone forever. There is no hope. But, Paul says, in that great transition at the middle of that chapter, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what the first fruits were? They were the first of the crop that were brought in the first of the crop, which guaranteed, that was always to be offered to the Lord because it was an act of trust. It was a guarantee that the rest of the harvest would come. Christ's resurrection is that for all of us who believe in him and follow him and hold to his word. Now, why do I say that that is so important to our hope? Well, Jesus said something interesting in John chapter 8, verse 51. Listen carefully. This is familiar but listen carefully to what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never see death. That's what Jesus says. Now, the, we, we, we pause for a second. We say, wait, Jesus, everybody still dies. I understand what you're saying, that, that we're forgiven and we're reconciled to God and we'll be taken to heaven. We get all of that. But everybody still dies. So what do you mean those who believe in him will never die? Well, you've got to understand in what sense he means death here. In this context, he's talking about death as the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. 
And that's what Jesus is saying those who believe in him will never experience. The kind of death that is the punishment and eternal condemnation for our sins. Jesus died for us so that when we, our body stops working, we only sleep. Jesus died for us so that we sleep when our body stops working. Jesus died in the sense of bearing the full weight of the wrath of God that our sins deserved. Jesus died for us in the sense that he paid the full cost that our sins deserved. We will never face death because Jesus died for us and endured the punishment of hell in our place. Because of that, death is still our enemy. It's a hated enemy. We don't love death. We don't rejoice in death itself. But it is a defeated enemy. Paul goes on in the book of Romans to say, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That is the basis of our hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that he has dominion over death. And in the book of Revelation, he is portrayed how? He's portrayed as holding the keys of death and Hades. He has dominion. He has power over death. And so we cry out with Paul at the end of that great chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He taunts death, the great enemy, because he knows that death is a defeated foe because Christ is raised from the dead. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul moves on to the focus of this hope. We have the hope because of the resurrection of Christ, and we share in that resurrection. And it is, we, he is the first fruits. We will enjoy the fruit of that resurrection. But the focus of our hope is that Christ is coming again to destroy death once and for all. Verse 15, he begins to, to talk about the coming of the Lord. The word coming there, you may have heard it. It's become kind of a Christian word, parousia. It's a Greek word, parousia. You know, the word coming is so general. Last week I talked about how the word love is so general that it's hard to be specific in the English language. We, but the Greek language has a lot of specific words for different types of love. It's the same way with coming. The coming here is a very specific kind of coming. It was a technical word that, that meant the re arrival of a king or arrival of a dignitary, a royal coming. The word literally meant presence, the presence of royalty in your midst. That's what this refers to. What an appropriate word for the coming of Christ. And then Paul lists some very royal signals that the time of the coming has come, that it is here. What to watch for, what to listen for. And the first thing he mentions is a cry of command. And again, specifically, the word in the Greek language means an authoritative shout. It's the kind of shout that I shout when I shout into the backyard when my dog is running out of my yard. And I shout, say, Dash, come here. It's authoritative. Unfortunately, I'm not sovereign, so most of the time he doesn't come. But I shout it authoritatively. 
It's the call of the ship's captain to the sailors to raise the mast. It's the call of the officer to the troops to say charge. It's an authoritative command. It's that creative, restorative voice of the Lord, the same voice that Jesus Christ our Lord used when he spoke outside of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus spoke of that moment and then ultimately of the future moment and the great command that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Listen to what he says. This is John chapter 5 beginning in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We will know that the coming is here when we hear the voice of the Lord commanding the resurrection of our bodies. And then secondly, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, the trumpet of God was a signal that the Lord had descended to meet with his people, like at Mount Sinai. There were trumpets blowing at Mount Sinai when the Lord descended upon the mountain to meet with Moses and to give his law to the people. The trumpets in Israel sounded whenever God provided a great military victory or a great deliverance from their enemies. And also the trumpets blew in Israel when the people of God would gather from wherever they were and they'd gather in the city of the Lord to celebrate the great feast, to celebrate their salvation. And so the trumpets speak of festivity and victory and deliverance. That's why we're going to hear the trumpets of God when Christ returns. I just want you to notice this isn't a secret event. Not some hidden event that only the believers are going to experience or be aware of. This is a loud, visible, public, majestic, and awe-inspiring event when the king comes back to bring to completion his work of salvation. And then how does this apply to our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed away already? Paul addresses that in verse 15. And we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Good news about our beloved brothers and sisters who have already died. The good news is, not only are they going to be there when Christ comes back, they're going to be at the front of the line when it comes to getting their resurrection bodies. They get them first. We're going to have to wait if we're here when Christ returns. But don't worry, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, again, he says, those who are alive when he comes shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. When Christ appears, 
The believing dead will be raised and they will be given their new resurrections bodies and they will be perfect in body and soul and we will meet the Lord in the air with them because we will be transformed if we're alive when he comes in a moment. The word there is caught up. We're going to be caught up. It's a forceful thing. We're seized and caught up, brought up in the air. It's the word that we're probably familiar with in the church is rapture, but I don't like to use that word because there's been so much confusion about what happens with the rapture. But what you're going to notice here is it doesn't say that once we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we don't go back somewhere else. We don't go back to heaven with him. We don't go anywhere else. We meet him in the Lord, with the, meet the Lord in the air, and we're with him forever. That's all that Paul says. And we know from the rest of scripture that this is the great one coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his return to make all things perfect, not just our souls, not just our bodies, but the whole creation. The reason we, I'm, I'm glad I'm going to be caught up in the air to be with the Lord in the air because he's going to devastate the earth with fire. He's going to destroy everything by fire. I don't want to be here when that happens. The earth is going to be renewed. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so here's the order of events. The Lord returns. The dead in Christ are raised we are transformed. We meet the Lord in the air. The earth, the heavens and the earth as it now exists is totally purged of all that is sinful and broken and destroyed and Ill, all illness will be gone, all suffering will be gone. All will be made perfect. And then there will be the great judgment. We all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive our eternal pardon because of his blood that was shed for us. And then we will descend into this new heavens and new earth to be with the Lord forever. Do you know, in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry when Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem. And he came, it was the one time in his life where he came in the, anything resembling, he came on a donkey instead of a great war steed, but he came in some semblance, in some clothing of a king, and you remember what the people did? The people from Jerusalem, they came out from the city to meet him. And they laid palm branches before him and laid cloaks before him. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, the Messiah, the Lord. They praised him as the coming king. And then they accompanied him as he proceeded into the city. That was the dress rehearsal for the great second coming of Christ. Because it's gonna, the same thing's going to happen, but on a much grander scale. Where all the saints of every age are going to be coming out of, the, of the, this fallen world to meet him in the air, to shout Hosanna, to praise him as the coming king, and to accompany him into this new heavens and new earth. There's also another allusion to this in, in the very personal story, the parable that Jesus told about the, the, the ten virgins. Five were ready for the Lord's coming, five weren't. And remember what, when, when, the, when he does come and the five that are ready hear the call, this is what happens according to the story. It says that at midnight there was a cry, an authoritative cry saying, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And that's how weddings worked back then. You come out of the, 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 the town, the, wherever you're at, you come out and you go out to meet the bridegroom as he comes and you would join his party as he comes, his wedding party. He would come with his wedding party and you would come out to meet him. The bride's party would come out to meet him and they would all be together and then they would proceed back to the feast, the marriage feast. That's what the second coming is all about, is that we are going to be with the Lord at the marriage feast and this is only just a foretaste. 
point of all of this is that our great hope in the face of death is that we, because of the redemptive work of Christ, we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. We will always be with the Lord. Our hope is the same as Job's. Do you know when Job lived? The book of Job, the Old Testament? It's not at the beginning of the Bible, so you tend to think that he lived much more, much later in history than he did. Job was actually a contemporary, probably, of Abraham. Which means Job lived 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. But listen to what the ultimate hope, Job speaks of his ultimate hope in chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. Listen to what he says. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. For 4,000 years, it's been the same hope of God's people. That our Lord will stand upon the earth. A new heavens and a new earth. And in our flesh, our redeemed flesh, our resurrection flesh, we will see God and we will be with him always, Paul says. My mother passed away back in 1990. She was only 70, which may sound old to some of you, but we expected her family was always long-lived and we expected her to live well into her 90s. But cancer got her and she died when she was 70 and I was only in my late 20s. And I felt cheated. I felt that God had not been fair. I felt that I'd not had the time. She was the human pillar in my life at that time. And I was really wrestling with her death, but there was a song, a Christian song, that came out by a singer named Alice Holm. It would just come out about the same time that I was dealing with this. And I found so much comfort in the last song on that album that he put out. It was called, Next Time It'll Be Forever. Let me read the lyrics to you. I just said goodbye to someone I loved, never to pass this way again. The time we had just wasn't enough, and it hurts to reach the end. A whole lifetime is really no time at all, just a moment, then it's gone. But next time, it will be forever. Then our hearts will be renewed. There we'll always be together. Next time, it will be forever. And I know that just as sure as there's a God above, we'll be reunited once again someday. Then forever we will be together in his love, and together in his love we'll always stay. Next time, it will be forever. That was 28 years ago, and that seems like so long in this lifetime, but you know what? That's not even a blink of an eye in eternity. And the next time it will be forever. When a believer dies, go ahead and grieve. Go ahead and grieve, because death is our enemy. Don't rejoice in death itself. Grieve. Grieve over the separation from your beloved sister or brother in Christ. Go ahead and grieve. It hurts. But rejoice that they are with the Lord, that they see his glory, and that we will one day be reunited with them.
in a world that is without sin, without temptation, without suffering, and without death. Let's pray. Father, the worst thing we can face in this fallen world is death itself, and yet we serve the one who holds the keys to death. We serve the one who has dominion over death. We serve the one whom death could not hold. Father, thank you that as we are in him, we share in his victory. Thank you for the comfort. And Lord, I acknowledge that there may be somebody here this morning who doesn't have that hope. They aren't sure what will happen after they die. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make your word clear to them, that they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said all we need to do is believe in his word and trust him. And he will give us this eternal life, not just for our souls, but for our bodies. And this hope can be ours as a gift, a free gift of his grace. Lord, I pray that you would give that hope to anyone here this morning who did not come in with it. And those of us who have had it, may it only be strengthened. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.